Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. In 2008, a kind of remarkable, miraculous, unexpected thing happened in the Goose Island section of the city of Chicago. A bunch of manufacturing workers at a Windows and Doors factory called Republic Windows and Doors decided to engage in an old-fashioned sit-down strike in protest of the imminent closure of their plant without any kind of warning from management. It really caught fire around much of the country, the importance of this event happening at a time after the financial crisis had really kicked off, right after the election of Barack Obama. And it was an amazing thing to to witness, but unfortunately, uh, it did not become a kind of flashpoint moment that signified a turning point in the fortunes of the American labor movement or in just working class militancy generally. But it did play a key role in sparking that kind of militancy in the city of Chicago where it happened, as my guest today, Alex Hahn, argues. And he wants to talk about this history not just because it's interesting in its own right, but also because we are in a situation in 2020 that is similar to 2008 in terms of widespread misery around the country, a declining sense of legitimacy of the status quo in this country, and uh, something that is different from 2008 is that we have a rising sense of militancy uh, among key sectors of the working class, as well as a rising left in this country. So... It begs the question, if you're a Chicagoan who was around uh, 2008's Republic Windows and Doors occupation, what will be, if any, the Republic Windows and Doors occupation of 2020? And just as importantly, will such an action, whether it's an occupation of a plant or some kind of mass strike or any other kind of act of working class militancy, will that incident serve as a spark that lights a fire in the American working class. Alex Hahn uh, argues that uh, it could and that we should be on the watch for such an act. Alex is a longtime labor organizer in Chicago. He's a former executive vice president of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. He was also the Midwest political director for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. Here's my conversation with Alex. Alex, welcome. Uh, thanks, Micah. Thanks for having me. So you spend a lot of time thinking about the state of the labor movement from a kind of 30,000-foot view. What do you think is the sort of, in, in, a, in a short summary version, a capsule version, what's the state of where the American labor movement is at right now and where could it be going in the midst of a crushing pandemic and record inequality and all the rest of it. I mean, what, what, what is your read of our current situation? Well, I, I think in, in a general way in the post-election moment, um, I, I do think there is, there's kind of a readiness among segments of labor, um, to take action, uh, potentially if need be kind of broader politically oriented action, um, say in the event of an attempted coup, um, by Donald Trump, um, turns out he is continuing to attempt a coup. 
um, in a very bumbling but still dangerous way. I think more specifically, one thing that we're seeing um, at this moment is a real uptick in job actions, and I would say particularly in the healthcare sector. And I think that that is a set of job actions that's really happening um, more broadly and more deeply um, than it really has in our recent memory. And what's some, uh, what are some examples of that? I mean, I know, for example, right now, or, or very recently, there was an enormous strike in healthcare in Pennsylvania with, I think, over a thousand workers who were represented by PASNAP. Uh, there have been, you know, we, we both live in Chicago. You know, there was a, a Illinois Nurses Association strike not long ago. I mean, th- these kinds of actions, particularly in healthcare, but also in other places, are, are, are seem to be really spreading in recent times. Yeah, I mean, on Sunday, um, after a two-day strike and subsequent three-day lockout, um, 800 nurses... Um, went back into work um, after five days of being on strike and then locked out in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, On Monday uh, morning, um, over 100 doctors and nurse practitioners um, went on strike in an uh, urgent care uh, clinic chain in Tacoma, Washington. Um, At the same time, 700 nursing home CNAs, dietary aides, housekeepers, um, went on strike in uh, an 11 home chain um, based in Chicago, Illinois. So I think just in this kind of snapshot of like 24 hours of activity, um, you have the breadth of both the geography of the country, you have the breadth of kind of types of worker in the healthcare industry, you have doctors um, to housekeepers and, and, and dietary, and you have three different segments of the healthcare system in nursing homes, in acute care hospital, and urgent care clinics that are all, you know, where workers are being stretched to the their limit in all of those settings. And so that is the immediate situation, obviously coming in the midst of a pandemic in which so many healthcare workers are like taking their lives in their hands every day when they go into work uh, to, to fight the pandemic or just to give people regular healthcare that they need. Um, And we're also obviously in the midst of record inequality and inequality that is worsening because of uh, the pandemic. So there there is what could be described as a kind of like lots of dry tinder out there looking for a spark. And I've lived in Chicago now for, I forget how many years, 13, 14 years. You've been here maybe uh, longer. And er you, you love to bring up to me uh, every conversation we have to have together somehow ends up coming back to the topic of the 2008 Republic Windows and Doors factory occupation. Um, and that was another moment in which there was potentially some dry tinder, but then there was this spark in the form of this factory occupation. Um, and so, you know, before we get into how that is connected to what is going on in the labor movement today, why don't you just remind people uh, what the 2008... Republic Windows North factory, factory occupation was, what the context was, what, what the potential for that workplace occupation was, and uh, what, what it did and did not do in the labor movement in, in Chicago and around the country. Yeah, I mean, the, the context was, and I do, I mean, we talk about this. I know we were both there at various points. I think that was a couple of years before we met, too, uh, Micah. It was, well, it happened on my 21st birthday, I remember, 
Uh, I was extremely hungover. Uh, we had just had a, a, a rager at the uh, co-op that I lived in uh, near Loyola University on Chicago's far north side. And I remember that a, uh, a United Students Against Sweatshops activist from the University of Chicago called me and told me this was happening. And I remember very vividly, despite being extremely hungover, being like, oh my God, this is like... This is what we, I re- read about in like the 1930s. Like this is, you know, it's like a CIO stuff. It literally is the, you know, the sit down strike, the kind of thing that they did in Flint auto factories. And now it's happening in front of my very eyes. And so I remember just like getting over there as quickly as, as possible. And it was, it just felt like an, a, a totally incredible moment. Yeah. So the, the quick story of what the Republic occupation was in, you know, December of 2008, um, at a at a kind of medium-sized windows and doors factory on the near north side of Chicago, um, 300 workers, upon notification that they were being um, immediately laid off um, in violation of the Warren Act, uh, notification that they were not going to receive um, any severance, and that the employer was telling them they weren't even going to get paid their accrued vacation time that they had earned, some of them over 20-plus years in the factory. Um, it was an employer that had been planning to shut that plant down for some time, had actually started to open up a non-union facility in Iowa and had been starting to move some of that equipment. And so those workers were, you know, prepared to take action. It was leading into the holidays. Um, you know, it was a time when no one wants to be out of work. Um, but on, I think it was December 5th of 2008, um, that upon, uh, getting informed of those imminent layoffs, that shift of workers decided they were going to occupy the plant um, and demand uh, negotiations, not just with their employer, um, but negotiations aimed at their employer's biggest financer, Bank of America, who had happened to, um, I believe, be the biggest recipient of bailout funds in the initial phases of the bank bailouts. Right. So the context here is that obviously this is December 2008, so this is just several months after... Uh, the economic crisis had really made clear how dire it was. Uh, and th- there's all kinds of uh, anger roiling generally about the state of the American economy and how American workers are being forced to pay for the crisis that was created by Wall Street, by finance capital. Uh, but it's just sort of like a roiling anger uh, that we later know would take, you know, very uh, distorted and, 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 you know, awful forms like the Tea Party. Uh, but in that moment, all of a sudden, for, from the leftist point of view, you're like, oh, this is this is functioning how it's supposed to. Like, there's this crisis that was created by the capitalists, and now the workers are engaging in some real old-fashioned militancy uh, in protest of it. Yeah, and, and I would also say, I mean, like, one of the clearest parallels between now and then is that um, you had a Democratic administration um, in the process of taking over from, you know, what was at both times the most criminal and dumbest and most venal Republican administration in history. And I have no doubt that the next time a Democrat wins an election um, after a Republican presidency, that will be um, the dumbest and most venal and evil and dangerous um, president in history. And, and, and so you had, you know, some real similarities, right? Economic crisis is happening. It's something that is being felt all through the country, all through the economy. Um, one of the clear differences is actually that I think that the Obama election in 08 really captured some of that anger and energy and kind of like held it inside it. Um, it captured some of that anger and energy, that anti-war energy 
um, that had existed that Democrats, you know, um, over the past couple election cycles had used in very cynical ways. Um, and I think that, you know, Obama represented what a lot of people thought of as like potentially a break from that. And then also you had him, uh, you know, feeling like he compelled when he was in his president elect period when this occupation happened feeling like he had to come out in support of the occupation. Right? Yeah, he he did. He actually, what, what he did was he came out in support of the workers in their demand for the money that they were owed. And so I think he kind of very artfully threaded a needle, um, but did publicly come out in support. I mean, it was really, and you remember for being outside that plant, um, there were points where you had to, like, you would have had to figure out a flying wedge to break through the line of Democratic politicians <laughs> who were there to try to make sure to get in front of those CNN and Fox News and MSNBC cameras and be seen supporting these workers. Um, it was also like right before Rod Bogoyevich, um was indicted, which right. is a, a separate story for our next conversation. Um, maybe, <laughs> Micah. Kinda, we don't have so, like a paywall on this podcast, but if we had one, that would be the like behind the paywall discussion the, about the, the real Rod Bogoyevich. Yeah, the Rod Bogoyevich Get a few drinks in you and make you talk yeah, about Rod Bogoyevich. I 100% I'm, I'm in for that. But I do. So, so it is. So there are a lot of similarities in the moment. Um, I would also say that, you know, that was a time, you know, these workers took over their factory. It was not something that had happened really in a meaningful way in living memory for anybody in the American labor movement. You know, the last time like that was a conversation was, you know, like uh, uh, decades before, um, really. And so so part of the what I think sparked um, the interest in that from a media standpoint more broadly was the tactic it was a really sharp and militant tactic you had workers there who were occupying with their families um you had broad support from the labor movement in chicago and i think that a lot of us thought well where else is this going to happen next like how is this going to snowball and turn into something bigger that didn't happen in a way um it didn't just roll downhill right i do think that there were ways in which both the labor movement and kind of closely related social movements in the city of Chicago internalized that fight and internalized that tactic um, and used that over the subsequent years. Right. Well, before we before we go into that, just remind people how, well, first of all, who the union was that carried this out, which is a key piece of the story, uh, and then how that fight uh, ended specifically for that group of workers who engaged in that sit down strike so i mean obviously one of the key pieces of this was that these workers were members of ue the united electrical uh, radio machine workers of america um you know a relatively small um but mighty kind of historically rank and file driven um and historically left-wing um union um these workers had actually joined ue um after decertifying their employer and mob-dominated union uh several years previous so they were they were workers who had taken control of their union recently um, to be able to move that in a direction that would take care of them. And so I do think in some ways it was a much smaller leap for them to say, we took over our union, let's take over our employer and make sure that these very basic demands are met. Um, what ended up happening was the occupation lasted five days um, and the workers were demanding negotiations with Bank of America. Um, and really, you know, and I think this is a critical thing to understand as well. Um, this was a defensive fight. This was workers just fighting to get the money that they had earned over the years. Um, a lot of this was around those kind of um, pay time off payouts um, from accrued time. 
um, over the years um, and leading into the holidays and understanding that during an economic crisis, they needed that. It's also important to note kind of the composition of the workforce. It was a majority Latino workforce, um, you know, meaningful amount of undocumented and kind of uh, uh, challenging uh, immigration status uh, workers. Um, I think the, the phrase that I saw was that it was majority Latino um, and a, a large number of black workers and a relatively small number of white workers. And so it's important to think about that as being a very, in a lot of ways, diverse workplace, but also like a, a workplace where there were really specific risks that workers were taking, particularly in what is clearly an illegal um, act of taking over their employer's property. So they sat, they occupied the plant for five days, um, ended up being able to negotiate a deal with Bank of America. Um, they actually brought in, kind of raised the question of taking ownership of the facility, which didn't happen in the immediate. Um, but workers won back every penny that they were owed. Um, and eventually, over the next um, couple of years, actually won ownership over a set of the equipment. And, and many of those workers went on to create a, a cooperative window factory on the southwest side of Chicago. So the obvious question here is, this was such an inspiring action that took place that I don't think any of us were, you know, guessing would would pop off in the way that it that it did. It really transfixed America at coming at the time that it did. It's memorialized in places like uh, Michael Moore's documentary "Capitalism: A Love Story." But it did not serve as the you know a spark that lit a prairie fire uh, in terms of getting other workers around the country at that moment to take similar action. Um, you have argued to me that uh, while it didn't do that on a national level, it, it it did do that in Chicago. So why don't you talk about the the the, the national context and then the local context and 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 wh- why things played out the way that they did? Yeah, I mean, I I would argue that I think the inspiration that came from that just took a lot longer um, to sink in and be reflected in broader activity. I mean, one thing you know that's always I don't know if it's the exact first place where the chant "Banks got bailed out, we got sold out" was used. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it was certainly the place where it was popularized on those UV picket signs, and and so you know, in the national perspective, I think it took a few years, really, in part because, uh, in part because of the political moment that we were in in two thousand eight, where you did have you know there was this kind of like hope um, of a shift back into kind of this end of history moment where liberalism was going to, you know, win its ultimate victory, um, where we had vanquished racism in Obama's election, or at least made a huge step, which I'm not, like, I don't say that, like, to- in totally a flip way, you know? Like, there w- there was a hope that people had that functioning within the systems that exist, like, was going to be what actually um, fixed things. And, and we, I think, a lot of us on the left learned, if, if we were caught up in that, we learned pretty quickly um, that that wasn't the case, and it took a little bit longer for some of our friends who are closer to the center um, to learn, you know, how the Republicans were going to to act, and you know what what uh what you can do to waste uh, Democratic supermajorities um, in Congress as well. <laughs> right. I mean, part of the, I, I almost feel like when I look back on the Obama years is that of course they were an enormous disappointment, but it's almost like we had to go through that process of getting our hopes raised very very high by a president who 
did a good job at playing a progressive transformational candidate on TV, but now in hindsight we see that his rhetoric was purposefully crafted crafted to be very empty. It would give you goosebumps, but it was actually quite empty. And of course, that the, the his actual legislative agenda, despite those supermajorities that you mentioned, uh, did not have that transformational effect at all. And so I think that's part of what led to uh, a campaign like Bernie Sanders is because we we went through that Obama process and, and we didn't really we, we, it's it it's such a squandered opportunity in hindsight. And so people are now wanting something a little more substantive from our uh you know left of center politics uh, we want a genuine leftist politics uh and and that demand comes from having been really disappointed by the the waste of the uh, eight years of obama yeah although i would say as well that that obama moment there are moments i think in that time frame where the the die could have been cast a little bit differently i think one of the reasons that obama i mean kind of brilliant rhetoric that kind of like said everything and nothing all at the same time. And you do that to keep your options open. You don't do it purely um, because you, you know, like what you've decided you want to be a vehicle for. And I do think there there was potential, um, had we had a labor movement, had we had kind of broader organizing movements that were willing to immediately move into action, um, you know, then, then I think um, we might've seen um, something of a different character come out. And I think that's also one of the differences um, from now to then, and part of what kind of the long tail of the Republic Windows workers um, have inspired. Right. So before we get into that, uh, about what things could have looked like if we had a, a strong and, and the left labor movement or a wing of the labor movement from the left that was willing to take advantage of that moment, um, talk a little bit about briefly about the the legacy of that moment in Chicago because uh, when I hear you talk about it, you're like uh, it's like the meme of the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like drawing the connections. You're like, don't you see, man? It's all it's all there. They're all they're all you can't have one without the other. They're they're all connected, man. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I can't share like my PowerPoint right now that I've done of just like the you know stuff shooting in from all over the place. But I do, and 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 bear with me here, Micah, and you should feel free to step in. But I so December of 2008. Um, is when the Republic Windows occupation happens. In the city of Chicago, in the next year, you saw a few other things, um, kind of actions. We saw the occupation of a school field house in the Pilsen neighborhood on the southwest side of Chicago um, that had been promised to be turned into a library for the school in a district where you have hundreds and hundreds of schools that don't have libraries, where you know, on the entire west side of Chicago, you have four elementary school libraries for all the students. So there was an occupation by parents and community leaders of that field house to block it from being demolished um, so that it would be turned into a library as had been promised. Um, you had in Chicago, the launch of uh, a group called the Immigrant Youth Justice League that launched their coming out of the shadows actions in 2009. They're kind of broader, undocumented and unafraid, like really taking significant risks, right? A group of mostly high school and college students in the Chicago area, some of whom had been directly connected to those Republic Windows workers. Um, you had uh, movements in Chicago, like a movement um, to you know, push back against the proposed closure of mental health clinics around the city that Rahm Emanuel unfortunately was able to carry off. Um, but you saw occupations of mental health clinics 
again, very directly inspired that were led by a community organization called Stop Southsiders Together Organizing for Power, several of whose leaders had been on site at Republic Windows, bringing food and bringing support from their organization. You know, this stuff rolled into kind of the Occupy Wall Street moment. Um, you know, you can certainly make arguments that the 2010 takeover of the Chicago Teachers Union and then the subsequent 2012 strike um, would have taken on a different character um, without the kind of building movement energy and willingness to use um, tactics that were outside of the, the kind of strictures of legality um, in a lot of these. And, and you saw a lot of ping-ponging between these organizations and movements um, of tactics, a lot of working together um, across the board. Um, and I think that that 2012 Chicago teacher strike supercharged, you know, a whole lot of other things in the city and around the country, um, but put us kind of in the position where we are today in Chicago, which is a city where we are facing, you know, we are kind of the center of a neoliberal experiment, but we're also the center of kind of a broad um, pushback, uh, a place where the left exists meaningfully um, in politics and in kind of daily life. Right. I mean, we now have a kind of uh, political poll in the city. You have, you know, on the right, you have uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and other sort of defenders of the centrist neoliberal status quo or uh, in the Democratic Party. And then the other poll in Chicago uh, is the one that, is, that the CTU has established and then all of the other unions and institutions that are around them uh, that, that, you know, is, is a real sea change in the city of Chicago in, in terms of just having a, a serious poll uh, and having elected officials who are around that poll and having unions that, that sort of break from the consensus. Uh, it, there's a, there's a, like a, a, an infrastructure and a, I mean, at this point, like major strikes and even like occupations, the ones that you mentioned, or I remember when the school closures fights were happening. I mean, we had, you know, mass marches all throughout the city. You had, in, in some cases, occupations, uh, temporary occupations of schools that were slated to be closed. I mean, this is the kind of uh, lingua franca of of the, the left labor movement in the city uh, at this point. Uh, and that's, that, that's far more advanced than almost any other big city that I can think of in America. I mean, that that, that, that is the sort of like norm. I mean, we shouldn't overstate it. We lose, you know, that, that left poll loses all the time, more often than not. Uh, in Chicago politics, but it, it, it is developed to an extent that uh, is, is not something we've seen in this city or anywhere else in the recent history. Yeah, and I would also add, I mean, just thinking about these last few weeks, um, you know, the day after Election Day, there had been these hundreds of events planned around the country through the Protect the Results Coalition, which was like a, you know, kind of broad set of mostly center-left organizations um, they tried to kind of tamp down like all of these actions around the country. But Chicago is one of the big cities where a meaningful action of, you know, like in the thousands of people gathered the day after election day um, to continue to put pressure um, on the election. I do think there's there's a lot of ways to think about like how how that plays out. Um, and I would also just kind of to go back to that, like litany, the list, the, the, whatever, the, the, the meme of, of all the things kind of, 
you know, leading out from that central um, question. I, I actually think there are two critical things that I just want to make a point on. One is that the fight for 15 was started in Chicago and it was started directly in the wake of the Chicago teacher strike. And so to me, without a Republic windows and doors occupation, we would not have a fight for 15, which you can have a lot of critiques around like how that campaign ended up existing, um, but really meaningfully brought back the you know, in a lot of places, um, the idea of the strike, you know, alongside kind of like the the teachers movement. Um, I would also say that in April, on April 1st of 2016, we had in Chicago a very little known event kind of nationally, but it was a one day political strike from the Chicago Teachers Union that ended up coming off um, with dozens and dozens of actions from allied unions. We had workers walking off the job at McDonald's, at childcare centers, at public universities, um, and we had uh, a, a very clear linkage with the movement um, for Black Lives that was growing and, and um, in that moment in 2016. Um, and so I do think there are, you know, obviously I'm a Chicago-centric person um, and a Chicago booster. Um, but I do think that there's like a different character to some of that action, that there are immense potential lessons to learn for the coming period um, that's on us in these next years. Right. So I guess the kind of summary of the Chicago section of this conversation is that this this uh, occupation of this factory happened in 2008. And we can we we, it's it's not difficult to make the case that the city's politics have been transformed in the 12 years since that has happened, thanks in part to that kind of example, to the energy that it infused into uh, the labor movement, until the into the broader progressive organizing movement in in this city. I always say when I'm talking on uh, book talks about me and Megan Day's book, Bigger Than Bernie, people would ask me questions like, uh, how do you, how do we get more AOCs? Which is a good question, obviously, right? But I, uh, I, aside from the obvious, like, you know, be looking for people to train and, you know, be keep your eyes open for people who would be good uh, left elected officials. I also say that the reason that Chicago has a large number of left elected officials on its city council, for example, uh, is not just because Chicago is the shit. It's because, uh, or it's a reflection of the fact that Chicago is the shit, but in a, in a different way than you than you would get think. I mean, the reason that those people could get elected to office is because the city's uh, politics were transformed by militant labor action by the two thousand eight. Republican windows and doors factory occupation by the 2012 Chicago teachers union strike. That's the, the ground upon which everything else that has happened in this city stands. Uh, and so that there are clear lessons for other cities that want to go and do likewise, uh, that, that it's, it's not just about finding that uniquely talented and, and principled and charismatic person who can run for office. It's about doing the slow kind of spade work of of building a real uh, labor, like a left labor movement that's willing to engage in militant actions like, like strikes. Um, And so that's, that's the story of of Chicago. But uh, of course the the Republic example had this, all this impact that we just discussed, but it it ultimately did not lead to a a transformed labor movement in the rest of the country. Uh, As, as we mentioned, much of the, uh, the momentum coming out of, uh, the 2008 crisis was actually gone to the right, went to the Tea Party. So we're clearly in a very different situation now. We are in a moment in which, as we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, there is 
all kinds of stuff happening in, in the labor movements, obviously very far from where we want it to be, but there are signs of, of hope and sparks of militancy happening. We're also in a, a situation in which there is a left in this country that, again, is extremely tiny, but is emerging and playing a significant role. Um, and so I, I guess what are your thoughts about the sort of the, the what, what the 2008 Republic Windows and Doors factory occupation means or, or what, what could it mean in 2020 when the conditions are miserable in a way that they were similar to what they were in 2008, but there are all these other things present that were uh, these other factors like a left and like a rising labor militancy that weren't present in 2008? Yeah, I mean, part of it comes from, you know, like my understanding is in the school of thought that I come from is that like, you know, labor kind of like, uh, there's no there's no social or economic justice movements that grow in a slow and steady way. Now, some of the groundwork and structure that you lay happens slowly and steadily, um, but growth happens in moments of upsurge, whether that is the civil rights movement of the 60s, whether that is, you know, the CIO moment of the 30s, um, you know, whether that is the railroad strike of the 1890s, like you can go back um, in time. Um, and think about how those upsurges happened. Um, we just saw during this pandemic an upsurge, you know, the largest street movement um, after the murder of George Floyd um, in modern American history. And so that is one of the pieces that is a key difference and kind of like outlines like what might be possible in this moment um, around upsurge. I do think it's important to think like, you know, our moment is defined by much deeper systemic shocks than in 2008, right? You have you have a set of overlapping crises that are multiplying inequality in different ways. Um, it's not a purely economic meltdown. And it's also um, becoming very clear that this is going to be um, a, a double dip, triple dip kind of economic um, recession um, that is going to have even worse impacts on kind of the most marginalized communities. And so we also have, um, you know, uh, a movement for Black Lives that has shown itself to have the support of, you know, at its peak, a majority of the American people um, and just millions of people out in the street. You have a renewed labor militancy over the last decade um, that has shown itself, particularly in statewide illegal strikes of red state um, public school teachers and kind of what we started our conversation with, like this uptick in workplace actions in strikes um, in the healthcare industry is something that is not going away. It feels like it's only going to be speeding up over the next few months. And we're kind of talking about a set of issues in the central industry um, to the moment, you know, the, the healthcare system um, in a place where, you know, a majority of Americans don't think it makes a ton of sense the way that we have our healthcare system functioning and where you have groups of workers who are able to take action that, you know, is sharp. And so I think part of the question is we have this groundwork, we have this fuel, and we've already seen it catch fire in different ways over the last year. Like, what is the spark that can come from worker action? Uh, how do we, what can we do to make sure that that spark is able to catch and that we're able to move that in kind of a positive direction. I, you know, I think about the, the wildfires across the West um, this year too, as really laying out a clear metaphor um, and example. I don't know if you've talked to Mike Davis about that at all, but I'm sure he might have something to say. You seem to be offering some 
light predictions about the the places in which this kind of wildfire could spark i mean is the is the argument that it that it healthcare is the most likely place that that could happen i would argue that health healthcare is the yeah healthcare is the place where a lot of this activity is happening it's kind of the crux and the nexus of all of the different crises that are happening right now i think we're going to see obviously you know a lot of talk about the lifting of eviction moratoriums um, which I think you and I and a lot of people listening to this probably know weren't necessarily worth the paper they were printed on to begin with. And so I think you can see a few different places. You know, I'm talking about really some of the 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 uh, the places where there's the biggest uptick in labor activity. But I do think that there are other ways to think about um, how can some of these tactics be used in common across kind of different different kinds of actions on different issues. Um, but I think healthcare is where, you know, I talked about a few strikes that are ongoing right now that just concluded, you know, over 2,000 nurses in a couple different bargaining units in New York State, in upstate New York um, and north of New York City um, have filed strike notices to go out uh, next week um, on strike. Um, that there is kind of a building you know, what what I think a lot of, you know, organizers would call like a drumbeat. Um, but there's something building that's not being built in a coordinated way. It's not being built by anybody's designer strategy. Um, it's being built by the, like the real raw day-to-day needs that workers have and like the only place where they feel like they have power um, to, to uh, extract um, some of those needs from their employers. So the obvious question is what what is to be done about this? I mean, how do we ensure that the sparks actually land on the dry tinder and the tinder catches this time. I mean, what are the kind of tasks of the moment to ensure that if something like a a 2020 equivalent of Republic Windows and Doors pops off, that we don't squander that opportunity? I think the biggest task is to be prepared and be on the lookout for these fights and to be thinking about ways that they can feed each other um, and that they can move forward. I do think that there is, there's a tendency, I, I think in some parts of the left, to really think very operationally about what needs to happen now. Um, you know, how do we build our, you know, big broad tent? How do we build a united front of the left to, to put pressure on Joe Biden? You know, that's not really my biggest concern right now. And I think it, uh, by necessity, it kind of like limits the horizon that we're able to see. I think if we're looking up a little bit, Um, from the horizon um, to be looking at where are these strikes happening? What is happening kind of on the ground, whether it's locally or nationally? What are the things to be paying attention to? And what are the strands that can get connected between them? Um, I think we're going to be in a much better position um, to to see if some of those sparks can catch fire. And so I guess to though what does that what does that mean i mean you know it's it's a it's an unfortunate uh feature of like every jacobin article and and podcast conversation that that we that we ask for the marching orders at the end but i mean what are the, what are the marching orders i mean for for those of us who want to see all that uh take place i mean is it that when those things pop off like you know democratic socialists of america chapters jumping in to support those fights is it people uh, you know obviously if you're in, embedded in as a rank and file worker in a workplace like that you can actually play a role in helping spark some of that thing but what what, what where what are the, the concrete uh, sort of marching orders for people 
I think it is. I think it's being willing to kind of share that information and that view organizationally. I think for, you know, organizations like DSA chapters, like kind of, you know, local unions or gatherings, groupings of workers, um, it's being ready and willing to talk about like, what does strike support mean over this next couple of months? I know it's something, you know, DSA Labor Branch in Chicago has done a ton of um, over the years. And so there are openings for, I think, people on an individual and a collective level to step in. And I think the more that we're seeing that kind of support, the more that we're going to be prepared to collect and to build on what that support could mean um, in a broader context. So that's what I would say. I think like any way to keep an eye on some of those struggles, there are like very straightforward ways um, to be helpful, um, you know, whether you have resources or not um, in strike support. And what to you is the kind of best case scenario in terms of an outcome like, walk me through the 2020 version of Republic kicks off, we do the strike support, we spread the word, we do everything that we're supposed to do. What, what, is the, what are the next steps that follow from that that, that, uh, that, that, make, that allow us to take full advantage of that moment? Well, I, th- I think one of the key parts of Republic in the fight itself was the ability to take the fight not to their employer, who was not, their employer was the person who was like directly in their face, Um, acting against those workers, but they understood that the solution was going to be when they went to the top. And I do think there's like a bit of a a story that some of the people who are in the room for those negotiations have told. I actually think they've told it in a panel discussion we did a few years ago on this topic, um, Micah, Um, but it involved a leader from the Chamber of Commerce who is a part of that negotiation, um, basically saying to Bank of America and to the employer, Um, You have to settle this right now in whatever way that you can, because if you don't, then the whole thing might fall apart. And when he said the whole thing, he did not mean this deal that's on the table right here. (laughs) This was the president, I think, of the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce saying that we don't want workers to be thinking that they can actually like make demands of the people who control their destiny. You know, if it's their boss, if it's the banks, you know, whatever uh, actor like actually has that control. Um, And that like not settling that they thought could expand that fight. And so I do think part of it is like, how are we, you know, like I've, I've been a trade unionist for, you know, the last 20 years almost. And I understand that like, in a lot of these strikes and work actions that are happening right now, the strike at its core is not about the pandemic. Those issues existed before the pandemic. A lot of the issues are sharpened, um, and so workers are more primed to take more militant action because those issues are sharper, whether it's around lack of PPE, which is true across the board. It doesn't matter if you're in the worst funded public hospital, the best funded private hospital, in an urgent care chain that is just like printing money off of this stuff, Um, you're gonna have shortages of the equipment that people need and you're gonna have staffing shortages. Um, So those aren't new issues and I certainly don't begrudge any group of workers that like says, okay, here's a good deal. (laughs) Like we've gotta take this to be able to move on. Um, But I do think part of it is if we can identify where there are groups of workers who are willing to say with the correct support, um, we're not going to settle for the crumbs that normally would settle a contract. Um, we want to actually figure out how to aim this at the players who are going to be able to um, 
make much bigger changes um, for a lot more people than are in this bargaining unit or in this hospital. Well, you, you just said numerous things, but the, the main thing I heard was the, 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 the quote from the guy from the Chamber of Commerce who seemed to believe that all of capitalism was in uh, grave danger <laughs> if, if the workers uh, could, you know, got a, got a real uh, uh, you know, pep in their step from, from that whole fight. So, you know, th- th- that, that's the main thing. The main takeaway is like, hey, let's, <laughs> we, could, we could really scare the shit out of these people. Yeah, yeah. And and that's what it's going to open up opportunity for like real victory and real thinking about political realignment and, and kind of real growth and upsurge. All right, Alex, thank you very much. All right. You're welcome, Micah. Thanks for having me. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.